Thank you, Jonathan. I ate an enormous plate of uh, taco salad. So we'll say I don't normally eat that close to teaching. So uh, we'll see how it goes. You're hoping, I wonder if that causes him to go shorter. <laughs> Probably not. Well, I've enjoyed the week as I always do. It, it reminds me, you know, these little, these little short weeks, it just reminds me how fast time passes in general. You know, you get here on a, driving up on a Saturday night and you feel like you got a, a full week ahead of you. And then it seems it's like after such a short period of time, here we are, it's Wednesday night, I'll walk out of here, get in my car, drive back to Shawnee, and, uh, and you're like on the way back thinking, where did the week go? And uh, I, I find myself feeling that way about my life at this point. I've got uh, a son at OBU now. My younger son's a sophomore in high school. And I know how quickly the, the, the academic year goes. My younger son will be a junior then, then senior, and then I don't have any more. You know, we'll be done with school. I mean, he'll still have college, but just how quickly life passes, and um, even if you, I would have to think, even if you live to be 100, you'd look back and say, boy, it seems like it, it passed so quickly. In short periods, sometimes it feels like it's moving slowly. Like, I can get mid- midway through a semester and feel like, Phew, this semester's never going to end. But then you get to the end of the year and look back over it, and you say, wow, where'd that year go? So uh, I feel that way. Uh, about coming, how quickly the week passes. And Andy, where'd Andy? Andy's, uh, did y'all see Andy Teague back there? So Andy, who's newly retired, did y'all know that? January 1st uh, marked uh, Andy's retirement. And so now he's free to travel about, come visit and say hello. And so the my first time coming here, uh, Andy was in charge of taking care of the details of my of my accommodations and stuff, you know. And nobody's more organized than Andy. He was on top of everything. Like he was giving me, like I was staying at the uh, uh, Kisslings uh, bed and breakfast over here, you know, when they lived downtown there, and they uh, and they they lived in the house and. Then there's the bed and breakfast, and there was a code you had to have to get in, and Andy was making sure I had the code. And then, you know, he was like, he was like your, your parent because he wanted me to text him when I got there. Of course, it wasn't that he was worried about me. It's so he could rest well knowing that I was here, and he didn't have to worry about coming up with a sermon on Sunday morning. But, uh, but anyway, it was always, uh, always enjoyable. And, and uh, now Jonathan, and I've enjoyed... Uh, so much getting to know him this week and uh, look forward to where your church is going uh, under his leadership and you got a music person coming on Sunday right Monday. week from Sunday you'll be in town on Monday and uh, then the search for a youth minister is is just really beginning and so it's exciting it's an exciting time in the life of your church you got some new people here um, that that weren't here when I was here last year so uh feels like an exciting time. But we're just going to fi- finish Ephesians tonight. And so let's pick it up at chapter 4. And I always like to go back to the outline. So uh, you can sort of follow along and, and uh, see where, we're, where we are. So if you look to, I think I've got the one you have. Yeah, there's a front and back, right? So you got the first page. Top of the, what is the second page? I guess technically it'd be page three, but it's the top of that second page. You see body. So we're still in the body, but we've made great progress. If you turn to the back of that page and you see the section marked exhortation. Everybody everybody follow along? So you had the theological reflection. That was chapters two and three. And then chapter four, we started last night with the exhortation section. And if you remember, if you were here last night, the last thing that I did was walk through starting at 4-1 and uh, through 16 and then at 4-17 and then at 5-1 and show how he uses that phrase, therefore walk, as a way to mark off the five exhortation sections. So we were just kind of working our way through that first one. So that's where we'll pick up. So we, we had just finished looking at 4-1 through 6. 
And uh, that's the section where he, this is part of that walk in unity. That's the first exhortation. Therefore, walk uh, in in the bond of peace, um, he says, in the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So he's talking about these Christian virtues that would nurture unity in the church, gentleness, humility, kindness. And then he moved to the theological basis of that unity. You know, there's, there's one body, uh, there's one Lord, there's one hope, there's uh, one God the Father, over all, through all, and in all. So there were seven of those. But, but there is this theological basis of our unity. And then we come to verse, starting at verse 7, and uh, he talks about gifts that the ascended Christ, he ascended and gave gifts to men, gifts that the ascended Christ has given to the church to enhance the ministry and unity of the church. So we pick that up at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to men or to people. That's a quote from Psalm 68, 16. And uh, you look at the Old Testament version of it, it looks like Paul's sort of, he, he's, he's, uh, he, he's slightly tweaked that so that it, it fits more precisely the point he wants to make here. But he says, when he ascended on high, that is Christ, uh, he took many captives captive and gave gifts to people. Then he adds to that in verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower regions? Now, I'm interested in your translation there at the end of verse 9, how it translates this. It's a phrase that just means the lower regions. But what do the lower regions mean? So I'll ask you in a moment to tell me what your translations say. So his point is not really the descent. The point is that he ascended. And I don't have any doubt what he's talking about when he says he ascended on high. That's that he raised him from the dead... And he seated him at his right hand. Well, the seating him at his right hand uh, involves Jesus ascending into the heavens. So you find that at the end of Luke's gospel. And really the fuller account at the beginning of Acts. So that's the ascension. That's part of the exaltation of Jesus. So it shows his authority over all things. He's been seated at the right hand of God. The place of honor and supremacy and authority. So his exaltation gives him the authority to give gifts to the church. So it's really about the ascending part. But he then just mentions, if he ascended, then he had to descend. Right? He couldn't go up unless he had first come down. So he descended to what? There's really two good options, I think, about what he's talking about. If you take it as he descended to the lower regions, that is the earth then it's a reference to the incarnation. It would be like the birth of Jesus. So he took upon himself human flesh. He descended to the lower regions, that is the earth. And then after his death and resurrection, he ascended. So the descending was his taking upon himself human flesh and becoming fully human. That's, that would be my, that, I, I would choose that option. But there's another option. And if your translation says he descended to the lower regions, and I'm curious, does it say anything else? Or does it, what, what do you have there? We're, we're talking about the end of verse 9. How does your translation handle it? The lower, parts of the, earth. the lower parts of the earth. See, that's definitely has in mind, that translation has in mind the incarnation, coming to earth. Anybody have anything that leaves a little ambiguous about what the lower regions are? Well, if you, um, if, do you know what the Apostles' Creed is? It's a pretty good summary, I think, of early Christian theology. And I actually like the Creed a lot. Uh, I think Baptists would probably do well to learn some of these early Christian creeds. This was one of the main ones. The Nicene Creed would be, would be another important one. They're just good summaries of the early church's theology. But the Apostles' Creed starts out, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Nothing to quibble with there, right? 
And then the second, so that's like the first statement. The second statement is, and in Jesus Christ, uh, his only begotten son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, crucified, no, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, uh, was, uh, died, and was buried, and then descended to, and it depends on how you translate it. You could translate it, descended to hell, or you could translate it, or you could say descended to Hades. Now, Hades is not hell in the New Testament. Hades is, is uh, close to the Old Testament word Sheol. It's like, it's like the realm of the dead. It's like where the dead people go. And, and if this is the, the reference here, if, if that's what it's talking about, and I think that's what the Apostles' Creed is referring to also, that um, sometime between his death and resurrection, uh, or after his, obviously after his death and before his resurrection, he went to the grave, like other human beings go to the grave. So he, he suffered death in the way we do. I think that's essentially what the Apostles' Creed is trying to point out. But if that's what it's a reference to, then it wouldn't be the lower regions, that is the earth, it would be the grave. And it'd be a reference to Jesus dying in the way that other human beings die until he was raised on you know, Easter Sunday. Now, either one of those would work, and I would say either of those would be solid theology. It just seems more likely to me he's talking about his incarnation. But it's not really the point. Um, the point is that after he descended, he ascended, and by virtue of his exaltation, he has the authority to give gifts to the church. So what are those gifts? He says in verse 11, So Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Now you might be thinking, well, I was expecting more like gifts like 1 Corinthians 12 has, like speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues and mercy or helps or faith or, or me, uh, healings or what, you know, that, those nice lists that we all might have here in this congregation. But he doesn't like choose specific gifts. He focuses on gifted leaders that are given to the church, that these gifted leaders are gifts to the church and it's apostles prophets. Now he's already mentioned them. This is the third time he's mentioned apostles and prophets. And uh, just to quiz you, it's a very simple quiz. Does Dr. Kelly believe there are apostles today like the apostles in the New Testament? No. Now I'm not, I'm not asking you if you agree with me. I'm just asking you what, what, what I think. So I, you're right. Uh, I don't think they're apostles like we have apostles in the early church. You don't have any leaders in the church that have that kind of authority. And even the prophets in that early church had an authority that prophets wouldn't presently have in the church today. But we do have people who fulfill the functions of apostles in the church, church planners, missionaries. We still, I think, there are still prophets in the church, still people who speak forth the message of God. They just don't have the authority that these had in the early church at the, at the foundational level of the building of the church. The third is evangelist. Um, and, and this does not absolve anybody from the responsibility to share the gospel, but there might be those who particularly are gifted and equipped to lead out in evangelism. Evangelist might, might look a lot like church planter also. And then the, that next category, so you got apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And the reason why, it, it's the way that Paul structures that last group. He's put a definite article in front of apostle, a definite article in front of prophet, a definite article in front of evangelist, and then one definite article in front of pastor and teacher. Not a separate definite article with pastor and a separate definite article with teacher. And it's a way in Greek to combine those two into some sort of conceptual unity. So it looks like pastor-teacher is one gifted position in the church or leader in the church. Does that make sense? 
And I think those are pretty general because I think in the church at Ephesus or the church at Laodicea or the church at Philadelphia or Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira or any of these churches that might be in that circle that, that I think Paul likely wanted the letter to be read, you would have found that kind of gifted leadership in any of those churches. So nothing really shocking there. You'd have spiritual gifts and also spiritually gifted leaders that are gifts to the church. I I like to think about pastoral and other leadership in the church as a gift to the church. Um, I think it's healthy for the congregation to see their pastor, their youth minister, the the leadership of the church, the gifted leadership of the church as a gift of God, a gift of God's grace. And uh, I think that's healthy. The, the, the bigger question becomes here, then what's their purpose? What's the purpose of the gifted leadership in the church? And so he says in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what is the purpose of the gifted leadership in the church? Are there three purposes? And if so, here they are. To equip the saints, to equip God's people for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body. That would be three purposes. And uh, I'm sure I've heard people explain it that way. But again, if you look at the grammar and the way Paul has constructed it, it doesn't look that way. It looks like there is one purpose for the gifted leadership in the church to equip the saints or to equip God's people. Now, what's the purpose of equipping God's people? So that they can do the work of ministry and so that they can build up the body for the building up of the body. And I honestly think this is a really profound point that Paul is making because we've just over you know, the life of a denomination, I think this has been true, congregations tend to feel like they pay the ministry staff to do the ministry. That's what we pay you guys to do. So you guys do the ministry and you guys build up the body. And we'll just pray for you and pay your salary. And I'll tell you, that doesn't work well. There might be a few just really extraordinarily energetic people out there who can do the ministry of the church and the building up the body almost by themselves, or maybe it's a particularly large staff or something and they can function, but that's not the way it's meant to be. Who's supposed to do the ministry of the church? The saints, the people of God. How many people have you had contact with today that Jonathan might never have contact with? Or certainly not today. Where you go to school, where you go to work, uh, where you go to the library, where you drop your kids off for daycare, whatever. You think of all the opportunities you have for ministry that your paid staff won't have. So you have the opportunity, you, when you see yourselves as responsible for the ministry, not just the paid staff. Now, that doesn't mean they don't, shouldn't be doing ministry too, but you're doing it together. Not the congregation looking to the paid staff to do the ministry and for the building up of the body. So, on the one hand, it just doesn't work. It's not possible for a few gifted leaders to do the work of the ministry of First Baptist Church in Enid. So it doesn't work well on the one hand. On the other hand, and well, I'll say, and another problem, you will drive your leaders into the ground. You will completely wear them down and burn them out. If whether it's sort of uh, signaled to them in subtle ways or if you even tell them, look, you're supposed to be doing the ministry here. If, if a staff member on church at, at a church starts to think that it's their responsibility to do the ministry and to build up the body by themselves, essentially, 
they will burn out quickly. And I just see it. I see it in churches that I go into. I see it with students that I've had that are out in churches. I hear about it in churches in Oklahoma. That's the ones I'm more wired into where people just get completely burned out. And sometimes it relates back to how they understand their role in the church. So God has given gifted leaders as gifts in the church. And their role is to equip the saints through teaching and preaching and uh, church planting and evangelism and speaking the word, prophetic ministry, through all these in all these ways, it is for the equipping of the saints. And then the saints, equipped, are able to do the work of ministry and help build up the body. And then in verse 14, he says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by every wave and blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in all things the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And again, don't you, don't you get the sense here, he's talking about the body together doing the work of ministry. Supported and nourished uh, by Christ. So, that's walk in unity. That's the first exhortation. The second exhortation is to walk in your new identity. Now, that's going to involve taking off some things and putting on some new things. Taking off some old things and putting on some new things. How about taking off some dirty, filthy, worn out things and putting on some brand spanking new things? You know, he's talked about the old things, like, and you, although you were dead in your trespasses and sin, uh, and you were living according to the ruler of this present age, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, you were living according to, yeah, this present world age, uh, the ruler of the domain of the air, and your own fleshly lusts, you were children of wrath, you remember that in 2, 1 through 3? So that's a good description of the old man when we were in Adam. That's who we were. But now we're no longer in Adam. Now we're in Christ. And we are a new creature. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So there's, there's something old that needs to be laid aside. And there's something new that needs to be put on. And a good way to picture that is like a garment. Like taking off an old ratty garment and putting on, you know, stripping it off and then putting on a nice new garment. And there might even be some sort of baptismal uh, imagery going on here because in, in the early church, people would strip off their clothes and baptism and put on like white robes. Some of the early church fathers talk about baptism uh, that symbolism of taking off your old garments and putting on a nice white robe. And um, some churches still, I've, I've baptized a lot of people in white robes. Uh, you might think, well, we need to cover up their undergarments or whatever, but that, there's nice symbolism in that nice white robe. Um, I've also found that a lot of churches have black robes for the baptizer. I don't know what the symbolism is there. But now, let's just hear what he says, walk in the new identity. So first, so we're at 4, 17 through 32. So if you're looking at your handout, we'd be at Roman numeral 2 under exhortation. Walk in the new identity. First, it's to put off the old way of life. So he says, therefore, I tell you and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility or emptiness of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over, or they have exchanged, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So this goes back to a lot of what Paul said there in Ephesians 2, but that 
That's the old way. That's how we were living before we were in Christ. That characterizes life before Christ. So it's time to strip that off. Don't live like that. Don't walk like that anymore. Take that off like an old garment. And then verse 20, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former life to put off your old, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be, to meet, to be made new in or by the Spirit, that is your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he doesn't go into a lot of detail about what the new garment, he did not specifically, but it's this new life. That's characterized by righteousness and being set apart for God's purposes, holiness. So strip off the old and put on the new. That's how we should live. That's how we should walk. And when you take off the old, you get rid of it. You don't just, you know, hang it in the back of the closet thinking, well, someday I might wear that again. No, you're not supposed to go back to this old way of life. It's done, gone. That's not who you are anymore. That's not what your identity is. You should never go back to living like you're in Adam. You, you've got a new identity, new family relations. You're in Christ now. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I don't like to throw things away. And uh, I've got a lot of stuff, although my wife's helped me clean a lot of that out of the closet over the last few years, but... I kept for like 20 years, I had every kind of dress garment, I kept it. Because I've not really changed much size-wise since high school. I grew a little bit taller after high school, and at times I put on a little bit more weight. Well, I probably was like 135 uh, when I graduated high school. And I grew a little taller, and I filled out a little bit. But I've been between like 155, 160 for about 30 years. And, uh, and not grown tall, much taller. <laughs> in fact, I'm shrunk a little bit, I think, in the last few years. But, so I can wear the same suits. I, I still have two ties. And I had a suit, and I, I don't even know what happened to it, but I had it when I came to OBU. But my grandmother bought me two, two Hart, Schaffner, and Mark suits because that was the best brand she knew. When I started pastoring the church, she bought me two suits, and she bought me a tie to match uh, both those suits. And I still have both those ties, and I wear them to school pretty regularly. And there was a time, they're pretty narrow. There was a time when they were really out, but there was no way I was going to get rid of those ties because they don't take up that much space hanging there on that tie rack. And lo and behold, the big ties, you know, that look like a slice of pizza, you know what I'm talking about? Those gone now. And, and I've got some wider ties. Now they're in the back of the closet. But I'm thinking, you know, those might come back. So I keep them. And uh, I've got some sport coats that I know Aunt, my wife Angie said, you're never going to wear that again. And I'm like, you never know. She's forced me <laughs> to get rid of some things over the years because I had to admit, if I hadn't worn it in the last 20 years, I'm probably not going to wear it. But why, what's, that, what's, what's that compulsion that, I'm, I'm not going to wear it, but I'm going to hang it here, you know, just in case. But Because, you know, if you get rid of it, you're never going to put it back on again. You can't. It's gone. Well, this old self, don't keep stuff hanging around the closet. Get rid of it. There's, there should be no going back to that old way of life. Don't make provision for it. Don't leave some of those things like laying around just in case. And then he, he's not finished with this yet. Again, he's just going to continue on. Live like the new creation. And it's more of this taking off and putting on. Verse 25 through 32. Therefore, each of you must take off falsehood, speech, and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are, we are all members of one body. So gossip... Spreading false rumors about people will destroy the unity of a church. And uh, unfortunately, that's a problem. Carrying falsehoods, 
telling tales on people. And we sort of wink at that, like it's not so bad. I mean, you know, we sort of joke about gossip and so, but it's so destructive. James thinks it's so destructive, he gives a whole chapter to it in the middle of James. James chapter 3 is all about the tongue and the power of the tongue and the danger of the tongue, of your speech. And, and Paul seems to know it too. So he starts out by speech. And then the second one, so the first one has to do with speaking falsehood. And he says in verse 26, In your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. And do not give the devil a foothold. So, in your anger, do not sin. Be angry and sin not. And I've actually heard somebody say something along the lines of, it's not a sin to be angry. You can be angry, just don't be angry and sin. That's not what Paul's saying. Anger is a problem. And anger often leads directly to all types of sin. And if there's any doubt about that, that next line, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Well, maybe you can be angry and not sin, but you can't be angry all day. You got to give it up before you go down to sleep at night. And, and then when he says, do not give the devil a foothold, it's clear that for Paul, anger is giving the devil a foothold. I, I think it's uh, Will Rogers who said something like, Flying, flying off the handle. Those who fly off the handle almost never have a soft landing or something like that. Um, but anger, it, it's hard to justify. Now, I understand indignation. Maybe there, there, there's a place for righteous indignation where there's injustice and things like that. But most of our anger is not that. And it's just the danger of it. And, and his imagery here about being angry and not giving the devil a foothold, it sounds so much like the description in Genesis of Cain, who kills his brother Abel. Listen to the reference to anger. So this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. And Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. So, so there's a double reference to Cain's anger and then sin crouching at the door. It just seems a lot like the language here about being angry and your anger gives the devil a foothold. Like the devil crouching at the door. So, false speech, anger are two of the things specifically to strip away. The third, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. So, stealing. We've got uh, one of the big ten there, thou shalt not steal. Uh, but do something useful with your hands that, that, they, that you may have something to share with those in need. Honest labor over stealing. And then the fourth, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths and it's a word that refers to the stench of rotted fish um, so if you want to think uh, I don't know rotten would be a way to say it don't let any rotten uh, or spoiled speech to have a little alliteration there come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may be grace to those who hear. Now, I bet most of your translations don't use the word grace there, but it's the Greek word grace. It's chorus again. Um, so that, that is grace to those who hear. And then the fifth thing here, between just from verses 25 through 32, the things to, he's telling them to do. The fifth one, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You remember back there in uh, chapter 1, uh, what verse 14, uh, he says, Who is a deposit or a guarantee of, of our inheritance? Um, so the Spirit is the down payment or the guarantee of our inheritance. Here he uses that language again. Um, Do not grieve the Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Before 
there's a down payment, he said, with the Holy Spirit with which you were sealed. So by living in the old way, by still displaying the characteristics of your life before you were in Christ, you grieve the Spirit. You, you cause the Spirit pain uh, by living according to those old ways. And then six, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That's the sixth thing here that he's telling them to do. And it's back to, again, some of it is anger and malice again. Bitterness. And then finally, something to put on. There's a lot more about what to take off than to put on here. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So put on kindness and forgiveness. That's the, that's the garment of being in Christ. There's the, the new that we are to wear. That's the new creation. All right, if you're at your uh, handout there, if you have it, Roman numeral 3, exhortation to walk in love. Just five verses. So he says, verse 1, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children and walk in the way of love so it's clear that he's thinking of this as a bit of a new idea because he uses the therefore and walk again so therefore walk in the way of love follow the example of Jesus and walk in the way of love and now we get a beautiful sort of definition of what genuine love looks like Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What a a wonderful way to summarize love by picturing it in what Jesus did for us. And and there's really three, three things he packs into this one little phrase. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So the giving himself up shows that God gave himself willingly. That's part of what genuine love looks like. A willingness to do what's better for the one you love, even if it's not what's best for you. The willingness to put someone else's need ahead of your own. That's the nature of love. Don't tell me you love me. And then keep putting yourself first and acting in your own self-interests. Don't don't tell me you love your wife and then live your life in order to take care of yourself first. To put yourself first. It's not the nature of love. So the willingness uh, to give himself up for us, that's substitutionary in our place he died for us he took our place willingly he gave himself up for us willingly and in our place substitutionary Uh, what's the nature of love the willingness to give yourself for someone if necessary the willingness to even to lay your life down for someone that's the nature of love If you love your spouse, would you give your life for them? You love your children, would you give your life for them? That's the nature of love. Don't just say you love me. If you'd gladly push me in front of the bullet, you know. And then as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. It's sacrificial by its very nature, by the very nature of love. So willingness... Um, that to take one's place and sacrificial. These are the kinds of words that describe genuine love. So love like that. So what if you loved your brothers and sisters in your church in that way? Not just your wife or your children. What if you loved like that? Um, that's what real love looks like. So we throw the word around a lot. We, we say we love it you to lots of people. And sometimes, I mean, it's probably true with a lot of uh, families where we tell somebody we love them. 
but what does that really mean? How do you love someone? What's the nature of that love? And we get all these false signals from the culture around us. I mean, from this present age, from this present fallen world, we get bad signals about the nature of real love. On the one hand, love gets sentimentalized. I mean, just look at Hallmark cards, you know. And I like a good card, and there's some really good messages in cards. And I really respect, like, the other men that are in Hallmark on the morning of February the 14th, you know, looking for the Valentine's card. Uh, I really respect those people going out there. And when I see a guy, and I assume he's getting for, you know, I got it in my head. He's getting a card for his wife. I hope it's his wife. <laughs> um, and, he, and he's actually reading the cards and putting one back and reading another one and putting it back and read, and maybe reading 10 or 15 of them before actually choosing one. I, I respect that. Now, it's a small thing. But it says something to me. I've also seen people walk in there, look around, pick one up, and not even open it up and read it. Now, I can't respect that. <laughs> but those who do read, there's a lot of you know, sentimentality in like a Hallmark card or a Hallmark movie or something like that. Oftentimes, that's, that's not really a picture of love. And then on the other hand, we get all, all sorts of signals from not Hallmark movies, other kinds of movies, but where it's, it's romanticized or sexualized. And love is equated then with sex. And then you listen to like country music. And, and, and love's just, you know, and, and so it's like almost an insanity of the mind. And it's something that will drive you to drinking. And, it, you know, if it doesn't drive you to drinking, you're not really loving somebody. And there's, a, there's an artist just up the road from where I'm from. Um, and there's a, he's got a song, and there's a line in it like, Tequila made me crazy, uh, cold beer wouldn't do, so I whiskeyed my way over you. That's the line. And I just think it's just, it's just so captures... These sort of false views of love. And if you look in the dictionary, you'll find it's almost always related to some sort of strong emotion. That love is, is linked closely to the emotions. And I, I, I'm not saying it's not linked to the emotions, but it's, it's deeper than that. And when it's just about a, an intense emotion, well then that can often hide the truth. You can have strong emotions and still not love somebody. And... I mean, I've had, I've had women standing in front of me talking about a spouse or boyfriend who has hit them and essentially saying, but, but he loves me. And I'll always find a way to say, that's not love. Does that sound like... The love that Christ displayed here, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you can hit somebody and attempt to hurt them, you might have strong emotions for them. You might think you can't live without them, but that's not love. So, love like that. And then... Verse 3 says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. So why is he so quickly jumped from love like Christ loved to sexual immorality? Because even in this culture, they didn't all have love right either. They often sexualize love. And so here's a perversion of genuine love, and it's, it's about sexualizing it. So he says, there must be no hint of sexual immorality. He uses the most general word here for sexual immorality. Or any other kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's, for the saints. And then verse 4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or vulgar joking, which are out of place. But rather, thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, back to the outline. Exhortation to walk in the light. 5, 6 through 14. Another pretty short section here. 
So beginning at verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, there's our therefore that says new exhortation. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now that he would put together here love and light, uh, it sounds so much like, First John. Now, by date, uh, it, for me, it wouldn't be possible for Paul to have read First John because I think First John was written after Ephesians. But these, this was something that was, I think, widely acknowledged in the early church that God is love, and so we should walk like Him. We should walk in love, and God is light, so we should walk in the light. And First John does both those. We did First John here a few years ago. 1 John chapter 1, after his little opening at verse 5, uh, he says, uh, If you say you have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, you lie. For God is light. So walk in the light. And that's the point he makes here. But in chapter 4 of 1 John, he also says God is love, so we ought to walk like him. And so it gets both these ideas in 1 John also. But here's the way Paul describes the walking as children of light. Walk as children of light, verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret or in the darkness. But everything is exposed by the light, becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes light this is why it said wake up sleeper and christ will shine on you now i'd love to tell you where exactly that's found in the old testament but it's not clear you know i told you he quoted from psalm 68:18 about he ascended on high and gave gifts to men that one's easy this one's not as easy it's not clear what the reference is and i don't know if you've got a study Bible, it may suggest passages that, that he's citing here. Uh, it could be Isaiah chapter 60, it could be Isaiah chapter 26, but there's no exact citation like that. So he may just be drawing on the, the, an idea from the Old Testament. Maybe it was something they sang in a hymn, maybe it was a baptismal formula, but it's related to wake up, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is the light. And, and uh, that's the end of the walking in the light section. So I just say, we have a responsibility to walk in the light. Bad things tend to happen in the darkness. So don't live your life in the dark. Something about the dark still makes me a, a little nervous. I think I told you this last year, uh, maybe two years ago. I just don't, you know, I always, always wanted a little night light on at night or... Something about the darkness always makes made me uneasy. You used to have to walk back and forth between my house and my grandmother's house after dark. And, uh, you know, when I'm 10 or 11 years old, it was probably, I don't know, 50 yards. But it felt like a marathon after dark. And, man, I would just run as hard as I could because, you know, I had imagined things chasing me. And maybe they were. But don't live your life in the darkness. Of course, that's a symbol for things that are contrary to God's purposes, things that are evil. But live in the light. And, and also, Paul says your responsibility is not just to avoid walking in the darkness. It's also to expose the darkness. Not just to be content to avoid it ourselves, but to point it out. Expose it. And then walk in wisdom. Starting at verse 15. And going through the, the, the end, uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Be very careful then, uh, therefore, how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the most of every opportunity. That's a dynamic way to say redeem the time. Redeem the time is like buying the time. We talked last night about redemption. It's like purchasing the time, buying it back. If, if it's not used for good, it'll be used for evil. So redeem the time, use it for good. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And then 18, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. 
Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this call to be filled with the Spirit is to live wisely in God's providence of things. And what are the marks of being filled with the Spirit? Worship and gratitude. That's the two things he mentions there. That we worship God with you know psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and we give thanks. Now that brings us to exercise wisdom in the Christian household. This is all part of this call to walk in wisdom. So I think the section really begins at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence. The word's fear, but I, do, I like reverence better here. Uh, reverence for Christ. And now what he does, he looks at the family household in the first century. And he says, Paul says, what would it look like to walk? in the wisdom of God within the household. What does the lordship of Jesus look like in a household, in a Christian household? So in order to answer that question, you have to identify all the members of a household. And then what is their responsibility in the household? So he starts with wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So now you know that this doesn't play well in contemporary culture to talk about wifely submission. And why is that? Well, some of it is a misunderstanding of submission. And I know I've told you this because submission comes up quite often in Scripture, and I I think we have a tendency to misunderstand it. When I think of submitting to somebody, my first thought is a submission that's born of this present world age. And, And submission in this present world age, in this fallen world, is a thing that is degrading and robs you of your dignity and, and it, it makes you less of the person that God made you to be. That's what submission is in this present fallen world. You know, if you make somebody to submit to you, you've, you've, you've assumed control over them, power over them in this present world age. That's not biblical submission. Submission in Scripture is something that allows you to be everything that God has made you to be. It's not a dirty word to talk about submission. It, it involves trust. It may involve giving up some control, but it actually allows you to be more the person God made you to be. And if you want to know what it looks like, look in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, where Paul says that Jesus submitted to the Father. Now, if you want to think of submission as something that robs you of dignity and honor, then what are you going to do with Jesus submitting to his Father? You know, like when he prays, not my will, but your will. So that's part of the problem. I would also note that children are to obey their parents. He doesn't say, wives, obey your husbands. He doesn't say obey. It's not obey. It's submission. And I would say, as best we can, you have to, a husband and wife, and I hope within the context of their church, will have to figure out exactly what that looks like in their own household. There are some sort of traditional roles for wives that we somehow equated with wifely submission. So we, my grandmother's generation would be one that would have done it exactly like this. She thought it was scandalous, my grandmother. And she died at like 103. Um, she was born in 1906, I think. But for her, if a woman worked outside the home, that was a lack of submission to her husband. Like it makes him less of a man somehow that she's out working. A woman wearing pants, I'm sorry, but that woman was not demonstrating submission. If a woman didn't keep a clean household, she wasn't properly submitted to her husband. Now you show me in Scripture where being a good cook and keeping a clean household and not wearing pants 
is a mark of your righteousness. Those are cultural kinds of things. In a given culture, maybe those are marks of wifely submission. I don't know. But a husband and wife have to work out in their household what submission looks like there. And, and I would say in the context of their community of faith, that's something that the church should contribute to that discussion. So we, we, need to, we need to think about what's wifely submission look like in our household, in, in this time and place, in our family. And I'd also say that you cannot ask a woman to fulfill her wifely submission unless the husband is also fulfilling his husbandly role, which is what comes next. Asking a wife to submit to a husband who does not love her like Christ loves the church is like asking someone to swim without water. It's just, it just not going to work. There's a mutuality in these roles that allows both to function properly. So what's the husband's role? A lot more. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. There is a sanctifying aspect to this kind of love. Christ has demonstrated it for us in the church, but it's true in the household. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. I mean, we tend to want to take care of our own bodies, not harm our own bodies. So we ought to care uh, for our wives. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for the body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, he quotes Genesis 2 here, 24, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a mystery. He says it. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. How two can become one uh, is, is a mystery. And it's something that it, it may be true the day you do say the I do's, right? You still remember the I do's? Um, but it's something that you grow in for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And, and you come to know more and more what this means for the two to become one in practice. And, and I, it's true in my own relationship. Uh, I, I think I pretty well know what my wife's thinking just by a glance. She can just give me a look or a, 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 a way of a touch, and I get it. I say, oh, okay, I got you. Better say no here. Uh, better tell this person we can't do that on Thursday night or whatever, you know. You just, you just, you know, you grow in this unity. And um, much more than when we were uh, earlier time in our relationship. So we have this opportunity, husbands and wives, to display for the world a picture of Christ and the church. If we can live this out in our households. We can give a picture to the world of the relationship of Christ and the church. It's the glory of marriage that it has that possibility. And then uh, at verse 6, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. right. I like that one. I like to say that one around the house a lot. <laughs> Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So also it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So that's the children's responsibility is obedience to the parents. And then four, instruction to fathers. Do not provoke resentment in your children. There is a way to parent that can provoke resentment. That can stir a sense of exasperation. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, one thing I know is that you cannot do that without being involved in your children's lives. To bring a child up in the nature and admonition of the Lord requires involvement and presence. So you better be careful about where you spend your time and how you spend your time, particularly when you have children, particularly young children. 
Now, I'm not saying you got to quit work to do this. But you have to make sure you're spending quality time with your children. It, inv- it requires involvement and it requires presence or you can't do what you're being asked to do here. Drive-by parenting doesn't work. Not for bringing them up in the nature and admonition of the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters and masters treat your slaves the same way. I'm actually just going to... I don't think we're really wrestling with that issue in uh, the 21st century about slavery and uh, masters. But... Paul had to deal with it because it was part of every household that would likely hear this, this letter. There would be, either be households that had slaves or, or people who were slaves. And uh, so he gives instructions to, to those. That brings us to the last uh, section. So if you're looking on your outline there, we are to, it's Roman numeral 6, but I didn't bold it because it's not the same, therefore walk. So it looks like that he gave those five walk like walk this way sections. And then here is a, an exhortation that is not just in the row. It's not just listed here. It's like a, an exhortation that sort of covers everything he's just said. And here's the way I think about it. If you try to walk in wisdom, if you try to walk in love, if you try to walk in the light, if you try to walk in the new creation, if you try to walk in unity... There, there are forces at work in the world against you that will attempt to get you to walk in another way. In the old way. Not in Christ, but in Adam. In those, that way you used to walk formerly. So what do you need in order to walk the way he's described? Well, you need, you need the full armor of God. So... Put on the full armor of God if you want to walk like that. You're going to need it. And what is it? It involves the belt of truth. You know, this is a defensive weapon uh, or part of the armor. The belt of truth. How about the breastplate of righteousness? Again, a breastplate is a defensive piece of the armor of righteousness or justice. How about shoes? Uh, which are the readiness to preach the gospel. You, you might think of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful are the feet of, uh, on the mountain of those who bring good news or bring good tidings. But again, this protects the feet. Again, it's a defensive armor. And then the shield of faith, what does that allow? It allows you to sort of extinguish the fiery darts of the devil, right? The shield is, is a critical part of the armor. And it's, it's primarily defensive. Now, I know Captain America uses his shield as an offensive weapon, but I, you didn't see that a lot uh, in the Roman military. The, the shield was very much uh, a defensive uh, piece of your armor. And then the helmet of salvation. Paul uses almost that language in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he says, uh, the helmet which is the hope of salvation. But here he just says, take the helmet of salvation. Again, the helmet is a defensive piece of your armor. And then the last one is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God or the Gospel. And that's the one, it can be used defensively, but it's also offensive. And it's the only one. And when he says the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, you can just sort of hear Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, so it's... It, I think the point is there are, there are forces that are set against God's people in the world. You might have a physical enemy. There might be physical forces that might be trying to derail you. But they're not the most dangerous of our enemies. The most dangerous are not flesh and blood. They are principalities and powers and rulers and dominions and authorities in the heavenly places. And we need the full armor of God in order to, uh, to thrive and to walk in the way he's described. And then 18 through 20, pray. Prayer and spiritual armor. And then final greetings. Conclusion. At Wednesday night at 7.07. 
Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this purpose, that you may know how we are and that he might encourage you. So letter carriers in the ancient world didn't just carry the letter, drop it off, and head back home. Tychicus would have read that letter to them because they wouldn't have had co- everybody wouldn't have a copy. So you'd have a reader, and Tychicus would have read it. And he probably participated in the writing of it in some way, or was the recording secretary, or was with Paul when he was writing it. So he could give a proper reading of it and then answer questions about what Paul had written and at least give information about how Paul was doing in his imprisonment. So maybe the letter carriers are more important than we recognized. So he mentions Tychicus, and then the final words, peace to the brothers. Peace to the brothers and sisters. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. You remember where the letter started? Grace and peace to you in verse 2. And now it ends again asking for grace. And God, may God who is rich in grace, lavishly pour out his grace upon you. And that's how Paul brings it to a conclusion. So what, what a wonderful uh, letter for the church at Ephesus and maybe some other churches in the first century. And uh, we're so blessed to have it as scripture for us to study here in the 21st century. So I'm finished. Jonathan, if I'm done, you, should I close this out? Or do you need to say something else? All right. Benediction. Benediction. As you go out from this place tonight, may you put on the full armor of God and may you be not afraid. May the Lord go before you to protect you. May the Lord go behind you to protect you. May the Lord go before you to lead you. May the Lord go beneath you to secure you. May the Lord walk beside you to befriend you. Now, put on the full armor of God as you go from this place, and be not afraid. Amen.